Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. All right, let's get into Acts chapter 9. Our previous two chapters, Acts 7 and 8, the gospel is spreading. It's spreading beyond Jerusalem. It's spreading in the midst of persecution. And it's spreading by the mouths of ordinary men, like we read last week. Stephen and Philip, these ordinary guys, not apostles, no titles, no formal education. Philip is traveling all around, sometimes teleporting around to spread the gospel of Jesus and lives are transformed, people are changed. And what I wanna look at today in Acts chapter nine is what happens when that gospel message starts getting infiltrated into the world. What are the repercussions? What are the byproducts of the gospel message taking root in the lives of people? That's what Acts nine is about. And it's a full chapter, all right? In Acts chapter nine, there is transformation there is healing, there is resurrection, all things that are on God's resume, things he likes doing regularly, things that he did while he was in ministry, raising people from the dead, healing people. But this is, this is not at the hands of Jesus or at the hands of apostles. The stuff we see working today, some of it's at the hands of Peter who is an apostle, but some of it is at the hands of just regular disciples who God speaks to in a vision. I want you to go over here. I want you to lay hands on this God. I want you to pray for him to receive sight. And all this stuff is fantastic. I mean, there's, there's, no, there's nothing like, like the reality that the Holy Spirit empowers his people to do these miraculous things, that God is working through his people to transform lives, to heal sick bodies, and to raise the dead. But even beyond that, you see these little nuggets of him doing these other little things too. I had a conversation with somebody recently and he was sharing with me something that he had learned from the word. He was just kind of reading through and he was like, man, this, the Holy Spirit showed me this and and it's just so powerful. And as he spoke it, I was like, man, that is really good. And I told him, I said, there's some things that you can learn when you're in a formal setting like this, right? When somebody's up here teaching the Bible and someone shares something, you're like, oh, that's good, I see that. But there is nothing like getting down on your hands and knees in prayer and panning for gold yourself. You know what I mean by that? Getting in the word and just sitting there and panning out, because when that little nugget of truth that he reveals in his word, and nobody showed it to you, you didn't hear it in a message, it wasn't in a song, you just found it because your nose was in the book. That stuff, nobody can ever take from you. That stuff you walk around in your pocket and you're just like, man, this is is one of those good things, and it just kinda, it's just always with you, right? And this chapter is full of those little things, those little nuggets that my prayer is that you'll be able to see in the midst of these, there's, there's these big stories, but there's also these stories of like, like a man having to overcome his prejudice in order to accomplish and fulfill and be obedient to what God has called him to do, right? Trying to get through, jump, jump through that hurdle or, or walk that, that narrow road of, I'm gonna forgive this person so I can do what God's called me to do. Now on the scope of things, that's not like resurrection, that's not somebody coming back from the dead, but it's, it, it, is, it is no less powerful. I'm convinced that one of the greatest 
epidemics of sin cancer in this culture today is rooted directly to unforgiveness. All right, you just wanna track where most of the issues that you see happening in the world today, most of it, I'm convinced, at its root, is because people choose, I don't wanna forgive you. I'm gonna hold this against you. That, that's something that the gospel speaks directly to. So as we get into Acts chapter nine, this is what I want us doing today. I want us to kind of have, have eyes to read into the text, to understand what, is, what the Holy Spirit is showing us in the realm of what happens when the gospel gets rooted in the lives of people. How does it change lives? What is the power at work when this message starts getting into the community of the people that hear it? You with me? Good, that's good stuff. Let's get to it. Acts chapter 9. Start in verse 1. We're going to start off with this guy named Saul. Spoiler alert, he will eventually become the apostle Paul, but he's not there yet. He's just this really zealous Jewish leader who wants nothing more than to stop the movement of Christianity, and he's doing everything he can. And, and that includes coming into people's nights in the middle of the, like when people are sleeping, ripping moms and dads out of the beds to go throw them in jail just because they're followers of the way. At this point, there's no such thing as Christianity. Nobody's calling it Christians, Christianity. It's called the followers of the way. I think that's pretty cool. I don't know why we got away from that, but we did. So you got Saul, and he is just fuming mad, and he wants one thing in life, and it's to stop what God is doing. That's where we pick up in Acts chapter 9, verse 1. It says, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest, this is in Jerusalem, and he asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. All right, now Damascus is north of Jerusalem. It's kind of like northeast a little bit. And we're seeing that the gospel message has spread as far into Damascus. There are, um, Damascus was the capital of Syria. You remember when we were studying through Isaiah, there's this northern kingdom of Syria who aligned with the northern kingdom of Israel. And they were trying to get the southern kingdom of Judah to turn in their alliance so they could overthrow the Assyrians. Well, the remnants of those kingdoms still exist in these cities, and Damascus is one of those cities. And there are Jewish Christians living in Damascus, and Saul has caught word of that, and he wants permission from the high priest to go up and find these guys and these ladies and arrest them and bring them back. Verse 3, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Now that word Lord is not him calling him Lord like we would say Lord Jesus. That's a formal term. 
It would be also accurately translated as, who are you, sir? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Mm. You feel that in your bones? To be so convinced that you're doing things for God and then all of a sudden be knocked on your, your rear end and Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Now rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless. Yeah, I bet, hearing the voice but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. Let's take a moment and kind of dissect the details surrounding this conversion. And then let's read this same account in another section. Keep your finger in Acts chapter 9 and then flip over to Acts 26 verses 14 through 18. As you're turning there, I'll give you a little context. Saul is probably around 30 years old when this is happening. He's leading the persecution efforts against the church and he's traveling to Damascus to pursue Christians, but he doesn't know is that God is actually pursuing him. And he's asked to retell his testimony later in the book of Acts, Acts 26, and we get more details about what actually happened in this moment. And these are from Paul's own words. Acts 26, 14 through 18, Paul says that when he heard Jesus, and when he saw Jesus, he literally saw Jesus, not just like a picture or heard a voice or a vision, he literally saw Jesus. Jesus said to him, this is 26, 14 through 18, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then he said, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. What does that mean? And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Rise up and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now, I wanted to read this account. We'll get there when we get through Acts, but I wanted to read this account specifically because this version calls out two very interesting points that is left out of Luke's telling in Acts chapter nine. And that is that there is a contrast between what Saul's work is and what God's work is. But the funny thing is that Saul thinks that his work is God's work. But it's not, it's Saul's work. And what Jesus says to Saul is that this misunderstanding you have, that you are doing things in my name, you are protecting tradition and trying to stop these people from overthrowing the stuff that Moses established, I'm telling you that it's like kicking against the goads. And what does that mean? A goad was kind of like a, a short stick about this long, and it was used when you were trying to get 
donkeys or cattle or whatever animal that you're riding or herding to try and get along. So you'd goad them. You'd take the stick and you just kind of poke them and goad them and try to get them along. The problem is that they don't like that. So when you start goading an animal, eventually they start kicking back at you as a way to kind of rebel. I don't like when you do that. But guess what happens? They go anyway. And so kicking against the goes is a first century expression that essentially means you're giving a reaction, a negative reaction, to what I'm trying to get you to do, but that negative reaction is not going to produce anything. You can kick all you want, but at the end of the day, you're going where I want you to go. Does that make sense? So what Jesus is saying to, to Saul is that your efforts... You, what you think is God's work is nothing more than just getting frustrated and kicking against the work that I'm doing. You can throw all the men and women in prison that you want, but my work is still going to continue at the end of the day. You can raise your voice. You can take the lives of people, but that very act I'm going to use to further this even farther. And I did it when Stephen was killed. The Jews dispersed all out of Jerusalem. The Hellenistic Jews, the ones who believed in Jesus, they spread out of the city and now they're all over the place. Why did that start? Because you thought it was smart to kill them. Why is this whole movement continuing? Because you thought it was smart to kill Jesus. That was the worst thing that Satan could have done. So you've got this contrast between what Saul thinks he's supposed to be doing, what his mission is, and what God's mission is. What is God's plan for Saul? What does God have him doing? Well, he tells us in verse 18, God's work for Saul was to open blind eyes. So Saul's work is to keep tradition. And God's work is to open blind eyes. Why am I mentioning this today? Because I see this same contrast happening regularly today. We get in our minds that we, we are doing this thing because God called us to, or God would be happy about us doing this thing. But at the end of the day, all we're really doing is protecting something that God is working against. You see this a lot in churches People start rallying around an idea or a building or a movement or a person. And all of a sudden, everybody stops losing focus of Jesus. And this thing that God started, He's not in it anymore. He's moved on. And the reason why is because the people have shifted focus and it's not on Him anymore. And so Jesus is saying, I'm wanting to do the same thing I've always wanted to do, which is open blind eyes and transform lives and resurrect the dead. But all you're interested in is making sure that the building is paid on time. And that we have the next project or the next event. And the life of the church centers around this idea of just keeping the machine moving. And there hasn't been a blind eye open in years. Now, why am I saying this? Not to point fingers. I'm saying this is a wake-up call because we're not immune to that. Nobody's immune to that. 
You take it outside of the church. You put it in your home, just your family. It is so easy to to, to convince yourself that the thing that God wants most of you is to just build a happy little home, a happy little family where there's not a lot of fighting, but we don't ever really talk about Jesus. That everything's just kind of cool, and as long as there's no unsettled waters, then he's pleased. And the whole time he's invited, he's like, no, 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 <laughs> I want, maybe every now and then you should like flip some tables. Maybe you should like, maybe, maybe you should maybe stop listening to that music and stop filling your time with just only listening to preachers preach the word through a podcast. And maybe you just kind of shut everything off and you just get wild and let some doves out of the cage and flip some money changers in your own heart and actually read the Bible for yourself. Well, I don't know where to start. Come and talk to me. I'll, I'll show you where to start. You want to, you're in that regular thing. You're like, okay, I'm reading it, but I don't understand. I'll, I will point you in the direction of some books that'll help open your eyes to some context. There is no shortage of resources in this church to help you take your faith walk seriously, but you've got to take your faith walk seriously. And I think we're getting a lot of church folk who without realizing it are walking around like Saul's. We are convinced that the best thing we can do for God is just preserve the tradition of faith in our home, but never really challenge our kids to get on their face and pray and watch God do something that only God could do. When was the last time your kids witnessed something miraculous? Now maybe that could be in the category of like literal healings or miracles, but maybe it's just in the category of you forgiving that person that you've held a grudge against for 10 years. That you don't talk about in your family and everybody knows it's one of those situations, but all of a sudden your kids find out that he's coming over for dinner. What? You see where I'm going with this? What we're witnessing here is absolutely a man who wanted to kill Christians, a terrorist being snatched up by Jesus. But there are even more deeper nuggets in this because what Jesus is offering the church and you and your families is the same thing he's offering Saul. I've got something better for your life. And I know that you think the thing you're doing is me and it's got my name on it, but I'm telling you, you're kicking against the goad. It's not, this isn't me. I want you to open blind eyes. I want people at work to, to know that you're a Christian and to feel comfortable coming to you with questions about faith, but they don't because they don't know you're a Christian or they know you're a Christian, but you look like you're angry all the time and no one wants to approach you. You know, he can change that too. I'm saying that as a giant with a mean looking face and a beard. All right? As a person who can be very unapproachable who has been told in the past, I'm not comfortable talking to you because you, you just, you look scary. <laughs> look, I get it. Some of you don't look scary. You just look mad all the time. The Holy Spirit can fix that. 
what the Holy Spirit is doing in the life of Saul, he wants to do in our lives. And that means let's stop kicking against the goads and accept what he's offering. Now listen, I want to be honest. That feeling that you get when you start doing the things that you think God wants you to do, it can feel like resistance, like kicking against the goads. But I just want to put in a little preface. We can't just make a blanket statement and say that every resistance that we face is us not doing what God's told us to do. Okay, this is just a little disclaimer. Sometimes the resistance that you feel, it may be demonic. It may be a result of sin, but it may also be a result of you doing the complete opposite of what God's called you to do. And I wouldn't be a a good pastor unless I brought that to your attention. Resistance can come from the enemy and it can come from doing the wrong thing, but it can also come from doing the wrong thing with the right intentions and that's gotta be fixed and addressed too. You feel me? Okay, let's go on. Let's go to verse 10. Oh, I skipped nine. It says, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Let's get to verse 10. It says, now there was a disciple at Damascus and his name was Ananias. Praise God for Ananias. And the Lord spoke to him in a vision and said, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. He's going to be praying when you see him. Well, that's pretty specific, huh? Go down to Thomasville Road. You're going to see a house with a pink door. Knock on it. There's going to be a lady in there wearing a red shirt. She's going to be praying. That's what this is like. But the moment Ananias heard who he was going to meet, verse 12, the Lord finishes the sentence. He says, the man that you're going to meet, he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So just giving you a heads up, Ananias, the person you meet, I have also given him a vision just so you two know what's going on. Just a quick disclaimer, this is in the New Testament, right? This feels like something you'd read in like 1st or 2nd Samuel or 1st or 2nd Kings, but this is post-resurrection. The Holy Spirit is empowering his people. He's speaking to people. Ananias is not an apostle. He's just a random disciple living in Damascus. And the Holy Spirit has said to him, I want you to go and I want you to meet this guy, lay hands on him and pray for him. And he knows you're coming because I gave him a vision too. That kind of kind of messes with your, uh, your theology a little bit, doesn't it? Because it's really easy to assume that all that weird stuff, it used to happen but it doesn't happen anymore, right? I mean, this is saying different. Ananias answered, verse 13, Lord, I've heard from many about this man and how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And he's here with the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. I don't know that I wanna go meet this guy. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. 
and I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, watch this, brother Saul. Now that's small and it's easy to miss, but he called him brother. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight and he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Jesus. Now let's for a moment look at Ananias. He's a disciple living in Damascus. He's just trying to live his life. He's not trying to make anybody upset. He's trying to get to work on time. He's trying to raise his family. He's not trying to get in the middle of a bunch of drama, but he is a Christian, so he inherited drama. It's coming, whether he likes it or not. And so he's just doing his regular deed. He's just praying one day, and the Lord appears to him in a vision and says, Ananias, I want you to go pray for this guy named Saul. Yep, that Saul. Now, Ananias, he lived in Damascus, and he knew who Saul was, and he knew Saul was coming with a letter from the chief priest with the authority to arrest Christians. And at this point, Christianity is still pretty small. And the region of Israel as a whole is pretty small. There is a very good chance that Ananias knew or was related to some people that Saul had already arrested and or killed. That's how small the movement is at this point. So the ask is not just go lay your hands on this random guy. The ask is I want you to go and I want you to pray for this man who wants evil for your family because he's mine now. And that little struggle, that little hesitation that you read about where he says, I don't know if I want to do this. You can sense the humanity in that hesitation because we're all humans and you know exactly how you would respond if God said to you, I want you to go lay hands and pray for this person who has been trying to ruin your family for the last three years. Getting over that speed bump isn't easy. And this is what I was mentioning at the beginning of the message. There are stories of complete transformation. Saul's life got rocked on the road to Damascus, but that's not all God is doing. The gospel has infiltrated the life of Ananias and it's now requiring him to not hold a grudge to those who wanted ill for him and his family. And so now Ananias has to make a decision to trust the Lord and forgive and to move forward so that he can obey what God has asked him to do. And when he goes, he calls him brother. Now that may not seem like a big deal because in church where everybody's a brother, hey brother, hey sister, hey brother. And we use it informally as a way to kind of show respect and love and mutual affection. But back in these days, early church days, the language that was used was very, very important. 
Because in the life of Jewish, um, in the life of the Jewish religion, there, there was no sense of like brother and sister and father. There was the high priest. There were these formal roles that you weren't and you had to follow what, and now what Jesus has done, he shows up and starts talking about God like a father. And everybody's like, wait, what? And you're my brother and you're my sister. That doesn't seem revolutionary to us now, but it was at that time. And so this language that Ananias is using is seeded with this understanding that he went there and was making a decision to not hold a grudge. And Luke is showing that to us. What is the implications of the gospel when it gets spread? Well, it's certainly transformation, but it's also that little thing that we hold on the inside of us. We say, I'm not gonna give you my all because I don't trust you, or I don't forgive you, or I'm holding this against you. The gospel requires that of you as well. Let's go down to verse 20. The end of 19 says, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. Ooh, hold hold on, Saul. Immediately he's in the synagogue saying the opposite of what he came there for. And all who heard him were amazed and said, that the, the, uh, is, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And he has not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him but their plot became known to Saul and they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But the disciples took him by night and let him down in a basket through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples and they were all afraid of him for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas, praise God for Barnabas, Remember Barnabas from a couple chapters ago? His name means son of encouragement. He was the Levite that sold some land because he saw what God was doing and he wanted to get on board with it. Barnabas comes and takes him and brings him to the apostles and declares to them how the road, how on the road he had seen the Lord whom spoke to him and how Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out and among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. So he picked up Stephen's old job and then they were wanting to kill him too. Them Hellenists are a rowdy bunch. But when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now pause right there. We're gonna come back to 31 in a minute, but what I wanna do first is I wanna explore this timeline of Saul. This is really, really important, and this is why I'm aggravated that the screens aren't working because I could show you a super cool map right now. But let me just paint this picture for you because there's some things that are missed in this summary of Saul's life that we pick up later in Galatians chapter one when Paul is talking about what happened post-conversion. So what's, what's going on here is you've got, you've got Jerusalem here. I'm gonna do it backwards so you can kind of see. So you got, you got the, so here's the Mediterranean Sea, all right? 
Careful, don't do that outside of church. This is the Mediterranean. You got Israel here. You got the Mediterranean Sea out here. You got Jerusalem here. You got the Dead Sea here, Galilee up here. You got Jerusalem here, and Damascus is up here. So what Saul is doing is he's left Jerusalem, and he's heading up to Damascus. And when he gets to Damascus, Jesus confronts him, knocks him on his rear end. He gets saved. And immediately we're told that uh, after Ananias came and prayed for him, he started preaching in, in um, the synagogue in Damascus. Well, Galatians 1, Paul is writing a letter and he says that it looks like in verse 23, it says, for many days had passed. How long are many days? Well, we get a sense of that in Galatians chapter 1. In Damascus, Paul is there preaching. We're told that he's only there for a little while before he leaves and heads to Arabia. Now, some scholars think that in Arabia was actually Mount Sinai. And there's a long debate about where Mount Sinai is and actually in the Sinai Peninsula, is it over near where like Saudi Arabia is? That would be uh, where I fall on the, on the map. I don't think it's in the Sinai Peninsula. I think it's in Saudi Arabia and we can, we'll have good concessions about that. After some of you are like, I didn't know there was a, two camps on that. Oh, there's two camps. So he goes down to Arabia. Some scholars think he goes to Mount Sinai and essentially what he's doing is he's spending some time kind of readjusting like everything that I learned. Okay, things are different now, but then he's, he's off on this journey and he's out in the wilderness and he's learning and he's growing and we're told that after Arabia, he comes back to Damascus and he's in that city of Damascus. That period of time from his conversion the time in Arabia and his time back to Damascus was three years. All right, so when we say in verse 23, for many days had passed in the Jews' party, that many days was three years. That's what Paul says in Galatians 1. And following that, at the end of three years, he goes down to Jerusalem to finally meet the apostles. Three years after he gets saved, he still hasn't met the apostles. And he goes down to the church in Jerusalem and they don't want to meet him. So Barnabas comes up. Barnabas, man, what a guy. Stepping up to the plate and saying, I'm going to overcome my fear of the situation. I trust that this is a genuine conversion and I'm going to make the introduction. I'm going to, make, I'm going to help this guy meet this guy. And we're told that, uh, Peter, or, excuse me, that uh, Saul stayed in Jerusalem for about 15 days and he met Peter and he met James, the brother of Jesus. And while he was there, he started getting up, making the Hellenists upset and started preaching the gospel. Things started going wild. All right, so follow me. So we've got Damascus, we've got Arabia. He's in Damascus, comes back down to Jerusalem. He's here for 15 days and things start going south. So they send him up to Caesarea, which is right here on the coast. And from Caesarea, they send him on up to Tarsus. And he stays in Tarsus for 10 years. Follow me. Before Paul's first ever missionary journey, before he even sets foot, 
We'll find out in Acts chapter 11 that Barnabas is going to come up to Damascus and then head over to Tarsus to pick up Saul, bring him back down to Jerusalem, and they're going to set up on their first missionary journey. It was 13 years before Paul started being a missionary. Now, he was preaching the gospel in the cities he lived in, but following his conversion, he stayed put for three years. And after that, he stayed put in Tarsus for 10 years. I told you, what are some of the implications of the gospel? Here's one of them. Getting rooted in a Bible-based, faith-filled, spirit-moving church and growing. See, we miss the fact that when Jesus was growing up, he submitted himself to his parents. And he submitted himself in Hebrew school. So he's got people literally teaching God God's word. Could you imagine Jesus at like 11 years old, sitting there in Hebrew school, learning about the burning bush, and Jesus is like, ah, I, remember, I remember that conversation. <laughs> Jesus submitted himself. Saul, who will become Paul, submitted himself. What are some of the repercussions of the gospel message? Lighting a fire in you to further the gospel, but also tempering with this desire to stay put, get down deep roots, and grow before you start telling everybody how much you know. But my favorite part of this section is verse 31. It says that after he headed off up to Tarsus, all of the stress is starting to dissipate. There's not a lot of people leading the effort to arrest Christians in their bed. Verse 31, it says, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was built up. And they were walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And the church multiplied. This is my favorite part because this is the Bible making it abundantly clear that this is what church is all about, folks. This is it. This is what he blesses. I was having a conversation with Chad and Christy last week after service, and we were just marveling at all the amazing things God's doing in, in the lives of his people, specifically right here at this church. God's moving in lots of churches and lots of homes, and, but, but it's just it's so special to watch it happen here, to, to get the, a Slack message during the week or an email or a phone call from some of you guys just, just sharing, man, look at what God's doing in my family. Look at what he's doing in my life. Look at what I care about now versus what I cared about a year ago. God's doing something. Why is that happening right now? The conversation we were happen, having last week is that we're convinced that we're just at a, at a really sovereign moment where everybody's in one accord. The folks in this room that call this church home, their eyes are on two things. The fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And when that happens, the Lord in His mercy just works. Because the people aren't looking at things that don't matter they're looking at the only two things that matter. 
to be able to walk in the fear of the Lord, to realize that every step you take is in the shadow of the awe of the almighty God who is stitching and threading all of time together for his purposes. Every step you walk is ordained. And the way he orchestrates that should fill us with the awe and the fear of the Lord. Not the fear of man, not the fear of what people think about us, but the reality that our God has called us by name and is ordering our steps and knows how many hairs are on your head. That's a big deal. And that changes the way you live your life. But also the moment you start creeping into that uncertainty, I'm a little fearful because I watch the news by mistake. I'm comforted by the Holy Spirit. I'm not comforted by how much is in my savings account. I'm not comforted by how much is on the shelves at Publix, because there's not much right now. I'm not comforted that my physical needs will be taken care of. I'm comforted by the Holy Spirit that even though it looks like my physical needs may not be taken care of, that's not all there is to it anyway, because man doesn't live on bread alone. Finding a way to be filled with the Spirit and living in the light of the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit is what this is all about. And that is one of the other byproducts of the gospel message. When the gospel starts infiltrating the lives of people, everyone starts walking around thinking different things are important. Fearing different things and being comforted by different things. Let's go to verse 32. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints. Now this is pronounced Luda. It looks weird, it looks like Lida. But the guy in the Strong's Concordance that pronounced it to me before the service said Luda. So I'm gonna say Luda. Now Peter, what's happening here is Peter's going on a little ministry tour. Okay, and the cities that he's going to is kind of like a a little circle. You got Jerusalem here, you got Luda here. He's heading over to Luda. And then there's another city right on the coast just north of Luda called Joppa. He heads up to Joppa. And then he heads up to Caesarea. We'll learn about that next week when he meets, uh, when the Gentiles finally start uh, being converted up, up in Caesarea. And then he eventually makes his way back down to Jerusalem. But what this is, is his little ministry tour. This is one of the first early missionary journeys Peter's going on. So he goes over to Luda and there a man named Aeneas. He was bedridden for eight years. He was paralyzed and Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. I'm gonna start saying that to my kids. (laughs) Rise and make your bed. And all the residents of Luda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. Now, now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which is translated means Dorcas. I think I would have gone with Tabitha. <laughs> she was full of God, excuse me, full of good works and acts of charity. And in those days she became ill and she died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Luda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging, saying, please come to us. 
Please come without delay. And so Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. And all the widows stood beside weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. And then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive and it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Now the end of nine, we shift focus from Saul to Peter, but it doesn't really matter what character we're looking at. Philip, Ananias, Saul, Peter, what Luke is trying to show us is that the work of God is always the same. The gospel message impacts people's lives and the repercussions are always the same. When the good news is shared and it takes root in the lives of people, there are common denominators that happen all the time. There are changed, transformed lives. There are healed bodies. There are people who are getting over unforgiveness. There, are the, there is resurrection power, literal people coming back from the dead, but also things that we were convinced in your life were dead and long past, him breathing new life on like a valley of dry bones and then them coming back to life. And something you gave up on many years ago, he's saying, hey, I'm gonna pour new vision into that old vision. You've got people like Barnabas, who when they're infiltrated with the gospel message, they feel a deep desire to make connections with two people who are at odds with one another. There is a wide range of things that takes place when the message that God sent his only son to die for you, to wash away your sins, to wipe away your guilt, and to give you eternal life. There is a wide range spectrum of things that start happening in the lives of people when that one message goes forth. We talked about this in the men's Bible study this past week. What does it mean when the gospel message takes root? These are plenty of examples here. We see people fearing the Lord. We see people being comforted by the Holy Spirit. There is no shortage of things taking place in the life of believers when the gospel spreads, uh, takes root. And if that is true, then there's plenty of work for us to do today. What I mean by that is that there are these big things, these big moments that you will see in your life. There will be these moments where you will look back and you will say, at that point in my life, when that thing transpired, when the Holy Spirit did that one thing, nothing was ever the same after that. When I forgave that person, when the Spirit spoke through me in that moment, my faith was elevated to the point where I trusted him for all kinds of other things. One of those moments for me is, is this church. When I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, plant Red Hills Church, I'm like, mm, okay. Certainly that's what this town needs is another church. But I said, all right, Lord, you do what you want to do. I can't tell you 
what it has done to my faith to be a part of this church as God has moved and grown, uh, grown it. It has been so, uh, listen, listen there, is, there is literally nothing that God can't do. That when, when if, 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 if he comes and he says, um, hey, I want you to do this one big thing, fine, let's do it. I'm at the point in my life now where because I watched him do this amazing thing and I look across this room and I see so many people, many of you like I didn't even, I've never even met you like a year ago and God just like kind of sent you here and however he moved things and we're, we're here and we're growing. Just the way that he did this, there's, he can do anything. My faith, because of what he did here, is so elevated that I trust him for big things. And what I mean by that is there are these big things that he'll ask you to do, and, he, and when you do it and when you obey, you, you just trust him in ways that you never have before. But there's also these little things where he says, look, look, all I want you to do is I want you to set your alarm for 6 a.m., and I just want you to wake up every day at 6 a.m. and spend 30 minutes with me. That's all I want you to do. And you say, okay, and three years later, everything's different. Your finances are different. Your prayer life is different. You read the Bible different. You talk to your wife different. You, you work differently. You speak to your kids differently. You look in the mirror and see a different man or a different woman. When the gospel message takes root, it affects everything, large and small, and I want more than anything for us as a church to have eyes for those things. Amen? Don't miss what God is doing. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.